Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Benjamin Garcia Olgado, a PhD candidate in political science. And I am Isabel Guisa Gomez, a PhD student in political science and peace studies. We are pleased to kick off our first season with a special guest today. Michael Kopech is professor of political science and faculty fellow at the Kellogg Institute. He is a world-renowned specialist on deconceptualization and measurement of democracy and is a principal investigator of the Varieties of Democracy project. Most recently, Michael has co-edited a collaborative volume entitled Why Democracies Develop and Decline, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Michael, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Isabel. Happy to be here. So let us start by covering some basic ground laid out in the book. We can start with a question regarding to the project. So in your solo author 2002 book, Democratization and Research Methods, you estimated that at least 55 competing explanations about democratization had been offered so far by prior scholarship. The new book that you published tackles the foundational question of why some countries escape autocracy rule and strengthen democracy, while others remain trapped. What is the novel contribution of this book, Michael? What can we learn about democratization, democracy consolidation, and democratic backsliding from this collaborative volume? Well, I think one thing that's obviously novel is that we distinguish among five varieties of democracy, and we disaggregate a bit to components and find that the egalitarian component or egalitarian variety of democracy is the most distinctive one. That's in this descriptive overview, and it goes back to 1789, which is also unusual. Some of the other contributions are less novel and more just reinforcing certain findings that some people have found in the literature, but not others. So, for example, we, we find that there are some very distant and therefore exogenous factors that are useful for explaining levels of democracy, such as European population or Protestantism and natural harbors. We argue that democracy is contagious. In chapter five, uh, that reinforces one side of the debate about the relationship between income and democracy. It shows that high income doesn't spark upturns in democracy, although it is associated with higher levels of democracy and smaller downturns. And among institutions, that chapter says that state capacity is really very important. And it casts doubt on uh, Juan Lentz's argument that presidential systems tend to break down. And it also comes to uh, discouraging conclusions about uh, whether the type of party system matters. The chapter on social forces provides the most comprehensive test yet of the impact of civil society on democratization. And this is made possible by the new data that VDEM provides. Uh, that it, and it concludes that a healthy civil society is good for all kinds of outcomes and that nonviolent protest helps upturns in democracy and right-wing and anti-system movements foster downturns. And then finally, in the concluding chapter, we supply a new framework that portrays these different hypotheses, not so much as competing hypotheses, as complementary hypotheses. And their complementarity becomes evident only when they're really arrayed in a sequence from more distal to more proximate causes. 
And when you do that, it also helps to be clear about which outcome you're trying to explain. Is it the levels or is it the more, more short-term dynamic changes? And we are argue basically that the more dynamic facts like economic growth and uh, social movement campaigns are better for explaining changes, and the less dynamic factors explain levels of democracy. Fascinating. So let's talk more about some methods and data that serve for this book. So the book heavily relies on data coming from the Varietals of Democracy Project, also known as VDEM, and I am sure that most listeners are familiar with this term. And, and this project records democratic outcomes for more than 200 political units from 1789 to 2018. As argued by former Kellogg Fellow Laura Garcia Montoya in a working paper, approaches to theorizing and measuring contested concepts, such as democracy, carry out a sort of trade-off between completeness, that is, concepts and measures that capture core attributes of a concept, and interpretability, to with indicators that can convey clear messages. How do VDEM data overcome this sort of trade-off, Michael? Well, I think that trade-off does exist as long as you stay at the at a high level of conceptual generality. That is, if you're trying to measure something as general and abstract as democracy. But VDEM addresses this trade-off in two different ways. One is by disaggregating or breaking down the concept into components and subcomponents so that that makes it more interpretable. You know which, you know exactly why uh, a given country uh, gets a really high-level score on democracy because of uh, all the things that go into democracy. And I think less obviously VDEM helps with this trade-off by establishing a rough correspondence between the continuous data that we supply and the original codebook descriptions, which provide a, a pretty rich qualitative description of, of what the score means. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. The next questions are about different aspects that you touch in, in the chapters. You're a specialist in the effects of international factors uh, on democratization. You co-author one of the chapters of the book that tests relevant international networks, uh, geographical proximi proximity, alliances, current colonial ties, and former colonial ties that drive contagion effects of democracy. Regarding this chapter, Michael, what methods did you use to assess such possible causes of democratization? What findings surprised you given prior research? And finally, can you tell us why you named the chapter The Hidden Dimension? Okay. Well, I think the interesting kinds of international causes are, take the form of networks that link countries together. And because all the countries in a given network affect each other, there's causation going in both directions between countries. And therefore, the democracy score in each country is endogenous or de depends on democracy scores in all other countries. And this flows in both directions. And so this, this situation called simultaneity, it makes it tricky to estimate how much influence each country has on other countries. So, for example, if you want to know the effect of Brazil on Argentina, you can't just regress democracy in Argentina on democracy in Brazil because democracy in Brazil is partly determined by democracy in Argentina. It's kind of a circular relationship. So the main way we deal with that is to use domestic determinants of democracy in each country 
as instruments to estimate what the level of democracy would have been in the absence of international influence. And those become the values that we use as predictors of democracy in neighboring countries. Then the other tricky thing about the networks is that the the so-called effect or, or coefficient of the spatial regression that we run, uh, the effect that it gives you is, is not the full effect. It's just the immediate effect of one country on one other country in the very first year. And it doesn't reflect two dynamics that happen after that. One is that the effect propagates spatially from country to country through the network. So Brazil affects Argentina, and Argentina affects Brazil, and also the effect of Brazil and Argentina then continues to Chile, and so on. It's kind of like the resonance of sound waves in a violin. And these effects decay every time they cross borders from country to country, and they eventually die down to insignificance. But they all add up to what's called a steady-state effect that's larger than the initial effect. But more importantly, and this is the second thing that happens, the effects propagate through time as well. So Brazil's effect on Argentina in year one is included in Argentina's effect on itself in year two and year three and so on. And these effects also decay with each temporal lag. So for outcomes that are short-term changes, such as upturns and downturns, these effects decay very quickly. All of the effect is realized in one to three years. But for levels of democracy that are very sticky, these effects build and decay very slowly. So the half-life of this effect of country to country on levels of democracy is 22 years. And it takes about 70 years for even 90% of the full effect to be realized. And this, for me, is one of the big surprises of that chapter. Another surprise was that the immediate effects are so small. You know, one of the motivations of everybody who studies the diffusion of democracy has been the possibility or even the worry that we've been overestimating the impact of domestic factors by ignoring international factors. But it turns out that, at least for levels of democracy, the estimates of the short-term effects of domestic variables are unbiased when international factors are ignored. And this is a paradox. The neighbor effects on levels of democracy are negligible in the short term, but they have a very large effect in the long term. And this is why I'm calling it the hidden dimension. Good title, too. In the last chapter, Michael, you and your co-authors introduce a very interesting concept, protective belt, to describe the positive effects of a vibrant civil society, the rule of law, and institutionalized parties on democracy. This concept resonates a lot with works on strategies used by opposition parties, social movements, and the judiciary to prevent democratic erosion, including the recent book by Laura Gamboa, one former student of yours at the Kelong Institute. How do the concept of protective belt speak to the other work, to these other works that are more action-centered and qualitative in terms of their research de design. Well, you know, I was I was very pleased to see that um, Michael Bernard and Amanda Edgel's chapter on social forces, even though they were using quantitative methods, they came to a similar conclusion. Some of this more qualitative literature, and they came to this conclusion in a way that I think is much more general because the data covers so many countries in so many years. And the conclusion also situates these findings in a broader theoretical understanding, 
What's most interesting to me about this is the dis distinction between the short-term and the long-term mm -hmm. outcomes. One finding is that the social movement campaigns, protest campaigns, uh, affect changes. In particular, peaceful protests uh, help drive upturns, and anti-system movements drive downturns. But these gains and losses tend to not be sustained if they deviate from a kind of equilibrium determined by the protective belt, that is, the environment of, uh, of freedom for civil society organizations, the rule of law, and institutionalized political parties. And that has some kind of interesting implications for democracy promotion. So, it, you know, it, it might be possible to manipulate or encourage uh, social movements or economic growth to produce some gains in democracy or to prevent some downturns. But if those gains are out of sync with the long-term equilibrium, then it's probably not likely to last. It's not going to be enough. Yeah. In the last chapter, you also argue that anti-system movements, you have just mentioned them, are detrimental for democracy's health and prospects. We have lately witnessed a similar trend in the U.S., where Donald Trump and his supporters, both in the Republican Party and among extreme right-wing extreme right groups, have produced incremental downturns in democracy and an attempt to block Joe Biden from taking office after winning the 2020 election. How do and your colleagues interpret this finding theoretically, in terms of the mechanisms that connect anti-system movements to the outcome of democratic downturn. What remains puzzling about it? Well, I, I want to qualify this by saying that the findings, like all of the findings in the book, are findings that are true on average in very large samples, like most countries for more than 100 years. And so there are some things that are uncertain. For example, in the social movements or the social forces chapter, one finding is that right-wing movements tend to produce downturns but we don't find that in the concluding chapter. But there are different models, uh, and so some of the findings are a little uncertain. But the models do tell us something about the mediating mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we find that literacy and income, two basic development indicators, have some impact on upturns, but it's all channeled through uh, encouraging nonviolent campaigns. So that is a mediating factor. However, the mechanisms are still very general in these models. I think there's this is a room for explanation. It would be really interesting to disaggregate democracy into its components to see which aspects of democracy are most affected by anti-system movements. Do they undermine civil liberties? Do they distort the media? Do they make elections less fair? How does this process play out? Amazing. So let's talk more about some conceptual issues that are offered in the book. So one of those is that you and your co-authors argue that democracy and authoritarianism are punctuated equilibriums. And here I am quoting a couple of sentences from the book. And punctuated equilibriums are long patterns of stability interrupted by sudden dramatic changes. So basically this means that the electoral democracy indexed doesn't tend to change a lot from one year to another year. You also say that the three variables that make up the protective belt that we have just talked about sustain these equilibriums. So can you please describe a country that typically illustrates this pattern and another country that is a sort of an outlier of this way? 
Well, I'm going to interpret a, a confirming case as one in which there is a protective belt that's pretty strong and it leads to a situation of stasis, perhaps with a more of a something that will survive an interruption. And I would use the United States as a case of that. You know, I, I think that uh, during the Trump administration, this was a manifestation of what came to be seen as an anti-system movement that led to a certain president being in power who began to undermine some of the institutions of democracy. But the democratic system responded. We're looking at institutionalized parties, we're looking at the rule of law, and we're looking at a strong, vibrant civil society. So, I, you know, I think the Democratic Party is pretty well institutionalized and it was able to win the next election and begin efforts to try to reverse some of these things. The Department of Justice and the courts also issued rulings that blocked some of the efforts that the Trump administration was trying to use. And also, we saw civil society rise up in the form of women's movements and youth movements and um, movements of uh, black Americans uh, to protect their rights. That doesn't mean that the situation is definitely uh, stabilized for the long term because the anti-system movement is still there and may even be stronger than before. But I think uh, it's possible in this case to see the protective belt in action. Well, a case of an outlier might be a situation in which a, a democracy survives in a country despite having a weak protective belt. And I would offer Venezuela as an example of that from 1959 to 1999, because the rule of law has always been very weak in Venezuela. And also civil society organizations during this period uh, were highly politicized by political parties and had little independence. But Venezuela had well-institutionalized political parties for a long time. And I think that's something that really helped that kind of democracy survive for several decades. Eventually, economic stagnation undermined a lot of things and uh, cost those two parties their support. And that helped undermine democracy and opened the door for uh, a populist like Hugo Chavez to, to take power and undermine democracy in Venezuela. Okay, thank you, Michael. In the, in the final chapter, you do an amazing theoretical integration, you, you referenced this before, of a structural and actor-centric variables. What seemed to be, in the past, partial, incomplete, and rival explanations turn out to be complementary variables that are linked sequentially in long causal chains. We would like to know how did you accomplish this? How was the discussion while you were doing this chapter between you and your co-authors to come up with this new way of interpreting these variables? Well, I think the ideas were born during an October 2017 workshop that many of the contributors to this volume held in Rome with support from both the Kellogg Institute and the University of Gothenburg. Uh, we had some really deep discussions there about what kind of conclusion we should try to write in this book. And there were a lot of ideas thrown around in that, that long discussion, and that deliberation inspired me to kind of feverishly propose a grand unified theory that would combine all four of the outcomes we were discussing in a single model. And there was some interest in that, but there was also some resistance. Some people said, it's going to take a long time and it would delay publication when we really have some younger contributors who needed to publish something as soon as possible. And I think, frankly, there were also some doubts about whether I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> uh, and I think those were pretty well justified doubts. 
But when the time came, I volunteered to write the first draft with conclusion, and there was still some resistance to attempting more than just a summary of the preceding chapters. But I was on leave in 2020, 2021, and I decided to try something more ambitious anyway, because I saw this chapter as an opportunity to make a big statement about what VDAM can do and explaining democracy, not just measuring it. I, I saw it as kind of our chance to make a mark of the, the culmination of, of all of our research. And I, I wouldn't claim so much credit for this if it weren't for the fact that my co-authors inserted a paragraph in the acknowledgments that identified me as the principal author of chapter eight. Anyway, I had by that time I had given up on having a grand unified model, but I hoped to produce a single best model for each outcome. And I was using structural equation models, multi-equation models that could simulate some variables being endogenous or dependent on other variables. That is a causal sequence. But eventually I realized two things. First, that there were thousands of possible models, and I just did not have time to test absolutely <laughs> everything. And secondly, that dozens or hundreds of these alternative models would fit the data about equally well. And at that point, I, I, for, I briefly considered doing some kind of Granger causality tests or mediation tests to make some decisions about how to specify the model. But at that point, I decided instead to do a path analysis with a lot of lagged instrumental variables that would suggest the best fitting model out of many open-ended possibilities. And so that was the origin of the, uh, the path analyses that are in that chapter. And after I wrote the first draft, of course, my co-authors made some important contributions. And I want to signal especially Amanda Edgel corrected a big mistake that I had made in choosing which civil society variables to include in each of the models. And that's why there are now four different models of upturns in the final product. And also Carl Hendrik Knudsen gave uh, some feedback on whether to modify some models that included paths that were hard to interpret and also whether to show some path diagrams that included all of the paths, whether they were significant or not, and decided, no, we're not going to do that. At any rate, after finishing the chapter, I felt unsure about whether this was going to pass muster, whether it was considered credible, et cetera, and I needed reassurance that the analysis was compelling, and my co-authors assured me that it was. So, sadly, we are almost reaching our time limit, but we would like to wrap up this episode by asking you a question. So, democracy and the issues that are touched upon in the book are quite traditional questions for political scientists and other social scientists scholars, but there are other lingering questions. And one distinctive aspect of your book is how you explicitly acknowledge the preliminary nature of your results and how explicit you are that knowledge accumulation requires the complementary and future work of others. So you, in fact, mentioned several empirical analyses that may be done in the future. So I just want to invite you to give us some lingering questions on democracy consolidation, democratic backsliding for future research, and particularly for scholars who might be tuned listening to this podcast and who might be willing to learn more from you. Well, I think of two directions of building on this. One is to replicate the analysis in subsamples. As you know, waves of democracy historically have tended to occur in different regions and different historical periods. So the first and second waves were concentrated in Western Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, third wave in Southern Europe and Latin America, and what I would call a fourth wave was concentrated in Central and Eastern Europe and in Africa. So I think it would make a lot of sense to test 
these same hypotheses in different regions of the world, and I really expect that the causal sequences would be different in these subsamples. And there are other ways of dividing it up as well. Another direction would be opening up the black box of democracy, which really wasn't possible before VDEM provided disaggregated data. You know, if you just have a, a single index to measure how democratic a country is, you can't look at the relationships among different aspects of democracy. So this would enable us to ask questions like, does an independent judiciary prevent concentration of power in the executive? Can a free civil society promote party competition? Does media freedom enhance accountability of officials, and so on. So there should be relationships among different components of democracy that have barely been explored. And so I think that that's a large field for some future research. Thank you, Michael. Those are great suggestions, and we are really pleased to having you today for, for this podcast, our first episode of the season that we are kicking off today. Thank you so much, and for our listeners to listening to this episode and joining us, and please stay tuned in the following episodes. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, everyone. My pleasure. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. Global Stage.